We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is sponsored by Liquid Death. Are you thirsty? Parched? Do you like dark and eerie sinister names for your beverages? Then you'll love Liquid Death. Go to liquiddeath.com. Use the promo code BIGBLUE. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. That's Nick Pilato. And this is playoff week. There's going to be a lot of content flying in from us and others. We want to do a ton of content this week and in the coming weeks. Hopefully, if the Giants can stay alive. Today, obviously, as you can see by the title, Nick and I are making our definitive case for why Brian Dable should be the unquestioned NFL Coach of the Year. Now, lately, I've noticed, starting with this Vikings game, really, Nick, and then it trickled over into this last Eagles game when we did our review pod last night. And we titled that pod, you know, what we're thinking, how we're feeling on the on the playoff eve. We didn't say Giants played good against the Eagles or Giants showed something against the Eagles or even what I put on Twitter over there, Nick, where I was like, Giants maybe planted a little seed of doubt in the Eagles, right? They started their starters all game. The offense didn't look that good. Jalen Hurts is hurt. But I don't know, somehow, some way, we, I, I, you know, and this is a good thing because it means our YouTube page is growing, which is ultimately what we want and what we need to do. But I got some nice comments today from some Eagles fans on that video, on the reaction video um, from last night. So this is not to say this is some kind of Homer case, right? Because we are not homers here, Nick and I. You may think that just based on some of our past discussions, maybe, or the title of this video. But keep in mind, this is not Nick or I saying Daniel Jones should be a pro bowler. This is not Nick or I saying it's amazing. It's insane. They put Trent Williams as the all pro over Andrew Thomas. This is not Nick or I saying things like, oh, my God. Uh, let me think of another crazy one. I don't know. De- De- this one actually isn't so crazy as by no, the way, I'm about to say, <laughs> what I'm about to say, which is uh, that Dexter Lawrence should be the defensive player of the year. Mike Renner made a case for that today on Twitter. And it was a pretty good case. He looked at all the interior defensive linemen. And no one's even within a ballpark when it comes to Dexter Lawrence, when it comes to his pressures, his sacks, and what he's able to do as a pass rusher from the interior defensive lineman spot. But we're not making the case for every Giants player here. We're not doing anything crazy. But when it comes to this specific case, the Brian Dable coach of the year, to me, it's unquestioned that he should be the coach. So we're going to try to make that case today. We're going to wrap this thing up by investigating, considering all the other candidates, and then making our final decision if we stand by what we said, Nick. So I have it listed loosely in the order of why I think he deserves coach of the year with the most important thing coming first, but I'm going to toss it over to you first. And I want to get your first thought on why you feel so strongly that Dable does deserve coach of the year. 
Look, I think there is a legitimate conversation that includes Dable. And I would say I believe he's going to be the coach of the year. Obviously, I'm a little biased. I cover the New York Giants. But there's one coach that I think rivals Coach Dable. And I know we're going to probably go back and forth on this. But I think the one coach that does is Doug Peterson of Jacksonville. I think he turning a team that was off of an absolute debacle of Urban Meyer had the first overall pick in the draft this past year and winning their division, I think is very impressive. And I think Doug Peterson should be in the conversation. I don't know if it's a slam dunk that Brian Dable should win coach of the year. Ultimately, if I had to choose, I would go with Brian Dable for the amount of reasons that we have listed on this outline that we'll be talking about discussing throughout this podcast. But I look at, let's say Shanahan and Sirianni. And I think both of those coaches are excellent, but their rosters are so much more developed and so much further along in terms of the players that they have at their disposal than the New York Giants are in their first year under Brian Dable. And you can find me someone nationally or even within this media in the Giants. And we could talk about this maybe a little bit later, Dan, who said that the New York Giants were going to make the playoffs. The expectations were so freaking low on the New York Giants. And Dable was able to turn them into a team that clinched the sixth seed in week 17 to where they could play their second string guys competitively in week 18. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think for me, there is an elite three head coach candidates for this award this season. You named one of them. We're talking about Brian Dable. I'll save the last one for when we make the case at the end. But I find it to be a three-person tier and then a drop-off. So I see you see it as a two-person tier. But let me talk about some of the things why I – or one of the some of the key factors and why I think that Brian Dable does deserve this over the other two candidates, even with them with them in mind as in that same tier, that elite tier of candidates, the three that I have and the two that you have. But he's even so a little bit higher within that tier. So it's two main factors for me. So I'll break them down. I'll start with the first one. The first one is simply the maximization of this roster. When it's all said and done, coaches play a role. Players, uh, I'm sorry, coaches play a role, but the players are the ones playing the games. And I've always believed that the roster, your total roster, is the main factor in whether or not you're going to win or lose a season. And that just simply wasn't the case this season. The Giants won nine games. They lost six games. They tied one game. They had a few other games that could have gone their way. In my opinion, the Vikings won on a 61-yard field goal. Obviously, the tie against Washington. Um and just a few others that were kind of like injury-based losses in my mind when they just kind of were hit a lull as a team. And that's fine. That's going to happen all teams. So I know they're not alone in that. But to ultimately make the playoffs and have Week 18 be a meaningless bye week for your team where you can literally, if you want to, treat it as a full-on bye week, right? Like the one seeds got their bye weeks and Tampa got their bye week because they wrapped up their division. And it was fun, right? You're supposed to only get to rest those players if you have the one seed. But the Giants were able to fully rest their injured players and even their guys who aren't injured because they don't want to risk them getting injured. And and what they essentially did was take away one more week of variance. The NFL's 18 games. By taking one a game out of that from a variance standpoint, you're lowering your chance of risk. You're, I'm sorry, you're lowering your, your chance of injury going into the playoffs. And that's what they did. So he's able to win nine games, get himself a bye week going into week 18. And why is he able to do it? Well, it has to lean on that. You have to lean on the coaching. And yes, it's partially the coaches he hired. We're going to get to that too, because that's a main factor. But when you go into a season like the Giants just did here, where if you do the math on this, 25% of the, almost 25% of the allocated salary space the Giants have put toward the 2022 season are players that are not contributing to this roster. Some of that is via bench. Kenny Galladay has been benched by the staff, but that doesn't take away the fact that his cap hit is so high and the Giants are weighing that into their roster when they can't make these moves in season, when they can't make these moves 
before the season free agency when they have to make moves just before training camp, like cutting James Bradbury, who they obviously would have wanted as their CB two this year or CB one, depending on how you look at it. It doesn't matter that he doesn't fit wink system. He's a damn good corner, better than Fabian Moreau types by far, no matter what the system is. And when you have to make all these cap based decisions, a lot of that matters when you're allocating that big chunk to a player like Galladay, who is not quite in in the coach's mind good enough at this point to get on the field. He doesn't separate in and out. He doesn't separate off the line of scrimmage very well. He doesn't have much explosion left in his game. I guess the one thing he can do, we saw on Sunday yesterday, he can high point a ball and make a spectacular catch, which is cool and great, but not so great if you can't get open. Catching the football is one thing. Getting open is more important. So. You factor in that, then you factor in all the dead cap. Oh my God, Nick, is there dead cap on this roster? I mean, we headed into a season with Nate Solder on the books still, with Kyle Rudolph still on the books, some Blake Martinez still on the books, and there's countless others. When you look at it all, it's over 50 million of their salary cap space this year is allocated to players who are not on the roster. So you put all that together, and then you also factor in the maximization of the roster post injuries. The Giants are not one of the most injured teams in the NFL, but they're certainly not one of the least. They're somewhere in the middle of the pack, and they've had a lot of nagging injuries and a lot of just depth-based injuries. So taking into account what he did with this roster to win nine games with this roster is different to me than winning nine games with a lot of other rosters. Now you can look at Doug Peterson, who has a very similar case, and we'll go over that at the end, what makes Dable maybe a little bit different. In, in my mind, at least, and I'll, I'm curious to get your take, but you look at some of these other candidates like Nick Sirianni, for example. Well, Nick Sirianni did win a lot of football games this year, but that's a different roster, right? There's no maximizing. Like, he's he's basically, as somebody said, I think two weeks ago, I don't know who would even start besides Andrew. I don't, I don't even know if Andrew Thomas would, but like who would even start from the Giants on the Eagles right now? And you'd you'd maybe Xavier, McK- like I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe Saquon the Bar- guys. Dexter Bar- Lawrence would have to. Saquon Barkley, Xavier McKinney, and I think Dexter Lawrence would start over would Fletcher Cox yeah. and Hargrave, but Javon Hargrave and, and Fletcher Cox are excellent in their own right. 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 So it's not even like a big drop-off from the guys. The only big drop-off might be Barkley to Miles Sanders. Some might not even argue that. And Xavier McKinney's better than anything they have at safety, but like it hasn't been a banner year for McKinney anyway. He's been hurt most of the year. So now you're looking at a roster that is so much better than the Giants. Yeah, they won more games. Nick Sierra is able to win more games, but it was not the case of similar rosters. And in addition to that, Sirianni, by the way, as you're probably going to note just by hearing my tone here, is not one of my final three candidates. He's not even close. I wouldn't even think he's come close to deserving this award. But part of it for me is like I watch these games, man, and so do you. And we watch two games of film on the Eagles this year. And I've seen other games of the Eagles on film just for like the fantasy podcast. He's he's running his system. They're kind of just running their stuff all game, every game, week to week. There's not too much nuance. There's not too much difference, in my opinion, in what the Eagles do. They kind of just run their system, at least before Hertz's injury. They're kind of just running their system. They didn't have to make many changes. They didn't They didn't run into too many like stoppages where, oh, my God, what we were trying to do, like the Giants did the season, by the way, when they were going run heavy, play action under center. It wasn't working, and they had to change everything they did and go to the quick game and go to the shotgun and let Jones run the offense and move in 11 personnel. He didn't have that with Nick Sariani. He didn't have to get to that point in the season where he had to change everything up and retool everything he was doing and try something new because what he was doing wasn't working. No, he just kind of ran out there with an insane amount of talent on offense, ran a system, let the system run out, and it worked. So that's kind of the difference to me. The first big thing for me is the maximization of the roster. And the evolution, right? And that kind of plays yeah. into exactly what you're saying. Because if you look at the New York Giants offense, if we want to focus on the offensive side of the ball, that's what Coach Dable's primary background is in. The Giants' offensive philosophy has changed both from a passing standpoint and a running standpoint, right? You go back to weeks one and two, you were looking at a team that operated 
a lot of power gap, a lot of counter, a lot of RPO, and it was a lot of fresh things that we saw in the red zone that we loved from Mike Kafka and Brian Dable. But then what happened in week three against Dallas, Dallas kind of shut that down and we relied a lot more on impromptu scrambles from Daniel Jones. So what happened in the subsequent week against Chicago, the Giants came out and they were like, we're just going to use Daniel Jones's legs because the Chicago Bears defense is wildly undisciplined. He scored two rushing touchdowns in that game and just absolutely ate into them. And then they kind of mixed all three of those game plans into one against Green Bay and Baltimore Ravens as well. And then you get to the bye week, once Seattle kind of figured out everything right before the bye week and the Giants lost, you come out with just a run-heavy approach against Houston, a lot of six offensive linemen. And now we got to a point, I would say, overtime of week 13 where the Giants tied Washington, where it was like, wow, why don't we just use a little bit more quick game? Because Isaiah Hodgins, Richie James, and Daniel Jones, they can develop, I think, a really solid rapport with each other. And we started seeing expanded into the quick game. And that's kind of where we're at right now, which I feel like is the excellent point where the New York Giants can be at because you can throw the football and I still think they can run the football. You saw the transition to 11 personnel throughout the season. I think that week 13 game, Dan, they ran 11 personnel, like what, like less than 50% of the time. It was all 12 personnel and the Giants just totally flipped that script and they started running primarily 11 personnel. And what happened? It's not like the rushing attack was affected. The rushing attack actually was better from an EPA standpoint, and they were able to effectively carve up a lot of defenses with their quick passing attack. That's coaching right right there. That's evolution. And that is what Mike Kafka and Brian Dable have really gotten the most out of this offense. And that's not even mentioning the overall player development that you were talking about at the beginning of the episode of the most important player on the roster right now, which is Daniel Jones. Well, that's my key point number two. We're going to get to that, but I still think there is a little bit more to talk about from his overall job with the roster. And there's other things we're going to get to too. Like part of being a head, great head coach and winning this award is hiring the right coaches around you. And we'll get to why the, we feel those guys are the right guys. But you mentioned the evolution of the offense. I think that's such an important little factor in his case and his resume for coach of the year, because how many teams have had to change what they want to do schematically in season because Well, they had to. It wasn't working anymore. And it's not like they're making the change with an Eagles type roster, right? They don't you don't have all these pieces around them to make that change. Like, oh, you know what? This isn't working, but we have so much talent at this position or so much talent in this version in the quick game or in the intermediate game that we can just make this switch there and everything should be all right. He had to take a risk there. It started, like you said, with that the Detroit game in the garbage time where they kind of figured like, all right, you know what? Maybe we can do a little bit of this. And then that Washington overtime, that's when you really started to be like, did they just do this because it was overtime and they want to change it up or will they continue to do it? And then they did continue to do it and move forward. So I think the maximization of the roster is one, number one, the evolution of the roster, evo- like from a schematic standpoint is number two, but also it's a two part thing for me. It's the evolution of the roster from a personnel standpoint. How many coaches had to deal with a completely changing and revolving door from a personnel standpoint, both at wide receiver and on the offensive line. And that's exactly what Brian Dable had to deal with this season. He dealt with massive amount of injuries on both in both of those position groups. Let's start with the one that I think factored less in here and was, you know, less impressive. And the other one I think is even more impressive. The less impressive one is the injuries on the offensive line. He had a starting left guard. He wanted to be Lemieux before the season. It wasn't Lemieux. He got hurt. They had to mix in different players. Azudu played it. Bredesen played it a little bit. Then he got hurt. Azudu played a little bit. Then he got re-hurt. Then they had to go back to Bredesen. They had to go to Gates. They've had multiple guys. Even at one point, they had, what's his name? The guy who blew the screen against Dallas, who I'm now forgetting. 
Jack, uh, Jack, Anderson. Jack Anderson. Yeah. Jack Anderson had to play left guard. It was almost very similar in a lot of ways to that evolving door. The giants had on the interior offensive line last year. Only the difference is they weren't able to make it work last year with the players they had on the interior offensive line this year. They were able to make it work, but he's dealing with a revolving door at left guard at center. He has an injury there too, right? Feliciano gets injured in the middle of the season, comes back, fights through it a little bit injured again. Now who knows what's going on there, but he had to turn to a player like Nick Gates both this past week and then earlier for that one game this season after he was not in football last, you know, and dealing with a gruesome injury and having all that time off. And then finally, he also gets an injury at right tackle with Evan Neal, the guy who they draft, you know, top of this class. He's supposed to come in right away, start up. Oh, he's injured. What are you going to do? Well, you don't even go to Matt Parrott, the guy you inherited. You find another guy in the waiver. And this is more for Joe Shane. And we'll make some kind of case for Shane at some point, too. He deserves credit, too especially considering how little he had to work with financially for what he's done this season from an acquisition standpoint with personnel and talent. But he goes to a new guy there at right tackle too. So that's three positions there. But then finally, the evolution of the personnel receiver, man. Holy shit. He had a role carved out for both Wandell Robinson and Sterling Shepard. This main role we see in the offense at this point, basically, now that we're on a quick game offense and 11 personnel offense, this offense, in a lot of ways, as weird as it sounds, does kind of run through Richie James. Right. Like that's the go to on, on most of these quick passing concepts. It's like, where's Richie? Richie's our guy that's going to take us out of trouble. Richie's dug them out of third downs. And that role was originally designed for Wandell Robinson. They draw who they drafted for that role, but also for Sterling Shepard. They felt like, you know, if Wandell Robinson doesn't come along fast enough, it's fine. We have Shepard. He can play that role. Both Shepard and Robinson got hurt. Kenny Galladay is a player who maybe they thought could play a little bit of a role. He got hurt. Colin Johnson is a player who they were penciling in for a starting role. Colin Johnson at the end of camp before his injury was playing every single first team rep, basically for the giants with Daniel Jones, he got injured. So that's three injuries. If you want to include Galladay, it's four. Let's not for this sake of the sake of this, but let's just call it three. In addition to all that, what is, ha what happens as far as an evolving personnel goes, he brings in a new guy right at the bye week in Isaiah Hodgins. And then this dude becomes a big part of his offense and a starting wide receiver catches four touchdowns in his last five games, Isaiah Hodgins, and now is another guy that's evolved from a personnel standpoint. So I think it's a great point to just talk about how impressive he's done with the evolution of the offense from both a schematic and a personnel standpoint. I think you have to throw Kadarius Tony's name into the ring too. You're right. He was You're so right. Yeah. He was somebody that a lot of giant. A lot of Giant fans were th thinking that Kadarius Tony was going to have a huge role on this team, and it made a lot of sense. And it was kind of obvious, like we brought up on the previous podcast, that he might not have had a full grasp of the playbook, so the Giants opted to move on from him. You're moving on from somebody that you drafted in the first round in 2020. That's just another asset that you're not using as a head football coach that is now out the door, and it's not benefiting you this way. You're not getting a player who is helping you this season. And that happened early in this year. And the Giants were still able to make the playoffs. It's just another check mark, in my opinion, for I would say Brian Dable, obviously, but Joe Shane, too, I think is another because yes. you brought him up and we can go on a little side tangent before we get back to Brian Dable. Yeah. The cap situation that he had to deal with was horrendous, man. Like not a lot of general managers inherit that much of a mess and then make the playoffs that same year. And obviously, there's a lot of credit that needs to go to Brian Dable, needs to go to Daniel Jones, but I feel like free agent acquisitions that Brian Dable may have had some say in guys like Jihad Ward, Richie James, Feliciano, Matt Burita, Glowinski. I know that one is a little bit more sour, but he still was the starting right guard for the New York Giants for the entire year and an upgrade over Will Hernandez from last year. Tony Jefferson, guys they brought in season during the year, like Fabian Moreau. He wasn't with the Giants during training camp. You have right. guys like Jalen Smith, Landon Collins, Isaiah Hodgins, as you brought up, like those are huge additions to this team that is now playing 
in a wild card game. And I think Joe Shane really needs to kind of get his cap thrown into the ring in terms of being considered for executive of the year. And that's not what I'm necessarily advocating for, because I know there are a lot of other teams that have done a great job, but I think it's at least I, I believe should be in the conversation. No. I think you're right, and I think that Brian Dable probably has a sounder and more complete case for Coach of the Year than Joe Shane does for I agree. Exactly the year. But also because, you know, Brian Dable has more opportunity in my mind. Brian Dable can get more creativity, right? He can design an offense. He can design a system, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. He can call plays. He can call two-point conversions in the middle, you know, at the end of a game, like at week one against the Titans to set the tone. He can so there's a lot of different things that he has the ability to do. Joe Shane was always restricted by what does he have in the draft and what does he have to work with from a salary cap standpoint. He had nothing to work with from a cap standpoint. He drafted, he inherited a ton of draft capital that he had, right? And I and you know, it, it is some people say, Oh, this isn't the greatest class. Well, this class got really injured. That's part of the reason. Wandell Robinson had a hundred yard game before his season ending tear uh ACL tear. He was literally coming along exactly as they hopefully planned. Like that was supposed to be the breakout Robinson game. Now, every week moving forward, we were gonna see this dude basically dominating the current Richie James role. Like, look at what Richie James is doing in that role. Wandell Robinson is a lock to have done a better job in that role. I'm sorry to Richie James. He's not quite as talented as Wandell Robinson. So he had that happen to him. And obviously he's had injuries for some of the back end players uh, from that draft as well. Evan Neal. Almost, all. Almost all. everybody. Yeah. Except for Tip. No, Tibbs got hurt too. Tibbs missed the first few games of the season. So never mind. Literally did literally every rookie they draft get hurt at some point. Flock got hurt. I think at some point. Yes. Not McFadden, I guess. McFadden's one of the only ones who didn't get hurt. Um, yes. I think Michael McFadden might be Belton. the only one. No, Belton Not got hurt. Belton, you know? Belton missed training camp and week Same. one. And that's just yeah. bad luck. Like that's not scouting. That's bad luck. That's simply all it is. He's drafting smart, tough, defendable type players. So that's has nothing to do with anything other than luck. But yeah, there's a case for him to be made. And I don't even want to discredit what both Shane and Dable have done because it goes both on both their resumes um, from an evolution of talent standpoint and personnel standpoint. At one other position, I mentioned, you know, guard. I mentioned interior offensive line. I mentioned receiver. Why not mention tight end? He literally lost his starting tight end, Daniel Bellinger, to a freak eye injury. And how many different tight ends have the Giants cycled through this specific season and put into this offense? And have they succeeded? Even at times, Nick Vanette's been decent for them. Lawrence Cager, right? We're talking about Chris Myrick, who started out the season and played well for them. These are guys who are not really on any NFL roster before this and weren't going to be on an NFL roster. They picked them up. They put them on their roster. And they found a way for them to be successful. And in addition to that, Brian Dable found a way for them to be successful in different ways. They're all three different players who have offered different things for this offense. It's not like yeah. Lawrence Cager, Nick Finette, and Chris Myrick did the exact same thing. Came in, were good blockers, caught up, whatever. You know, they did all different kinds of things. That's the most interesting part to me. You take this personnel like those three who aren't really, in my mind, all too talented. No offense. Cager has some talent. No offense to the rest of those dudes. They're good, but versus the rest of the NFL, right? They're not NFL teams weren't beating down the door to trade for Nick Vanette or sign Nick Vanette or Chris Myrick or Lawrence Cager. They got them off the scrap heap. And in a, and despite all that, they found roles for them to be successful in this offense. And that's another tip of my cap to Brian Dable. And it's another key thing in his resume. You forgot about your boy Tanner Hudson, too. He had a big right. role on this as well. Forgot about T Huds. Yeah. I still think he'd be a good receiver for them. Exactly. No, I agree. And just to to kind of circle back to the 11 personnel, because I think that is also important when you change your the way you allocate your personnel out there, that's going to change the philosophy of your offense to some right. degree, maybe not completely. But I pulled up the stats here since that Washington tie in week 13, the Giants used 11 personnel 49.2 percent of the time against Philadelphia a game where they got blown out. 
They ran 87.3 against Washington the second time. Remember, they had a bye week in between 79%. Minnesota, 86.4%. Indianapolis, 80.3%. So it was just a ton of 11 personnel since then. man. And that's just what the New York Giants have transitioned to. But do you want to move on, Dan, to I feel like something that a lot of fans do not discuss, but I feel like it's vital to just how effective a team can be. And that's this coaching staff and the way Brian Dable assembled this coaching staff. I feel like bringing in Mike Kafka and Don Wink Martindale, those were huge hires, but we can even talk about these position group players and how Brian Dable brought in guys who had continuity with him, who were up there in Buffalo with him, guys who were with Don Wink Martindale in Baltimore, but also these new guys and guys who were on Joe Judge's staff that were highly regarded, guys like Jerome Henderson, defensive backs coach. I feel like I haven't been as confident in a coaching staff for quite a while, right? Because how many times in the past have we talked about nepotism in coaching and just bad coaching hires, right? Like you go back to the Pat Shermer days, Hal Hunter was the offensive line coach. That was his buddy, but he was, he was a very bad offensive line coach. And our offensive line was never on the same page with each other back then. And then Joe judge comes in and we're like, okay, yeah, you know, we're assembling a nice coaching staff. Jason Garrett was hired and we were like, well, you know, Jason Garrett has head coaching, you know, maybe he can help this rookie coach along. But we ultimately kind of thought that that was going to be an archaic offense. We hoped that he would develop. That did not happen. And then Joe Judge almost gets into a fight with Mark Colombo reportedly. That just an absolute mess. Dave DiGuglielmo comes in and it's just like, what the hell is going on? But now with Brian Dable, I really feel and trust that this coaching staff is getting the most out of their players. When's the last time we felt that way? That's a great point because I don't know when the last time we felt that way was. I definitely didn't feel that way even in 2016. I felt that way on the defensive side of the ball that year, but I didn't feel that way on the offensive side of the ball with Ben McAdoo in his first season. It was a great first season for him that made the plus, but I certainly didn't feel like we were getting the most out of those players. And in addition to that, when's the last time we felt like we were getting a coaching edge from this team on a week-to-week basis, on even a game basis? We didn't feel that way at any point under uh the, in the joe judge era i didn't feel that way at least i felt that way against seattle um when the giants beat seattle two years ago i felt that way with patrick graham versus brian schottenheimer i think it was at the time but that's also like patrick graham versus brian schottenheimer and it might not have been schottenheimer it was another bad oc it was like patrick graham against a bad oc in seattle and they grinded that game out and they figured out a way to, st- to stifle russell wilson who has been trending down anyway as a quarterback as we now see got injured the next year hasn't been the same since so it's like how great was that even but that was the last time i felt like they even had a one side of the ball coaching edge during that judge that whole judge era now you go back to Shermer days there might have been some offensive game plans i felt like he had an edge over the defensive coordinator i don't know but on a consistent basis like this year it hasn't been the case and one thing we know is look the gm is here to hire the head coach but the head coach is here to assemble the coaching staff, right? Mm-hmm. The head coach brings in the coordinators. The head coach brings in the assistant coaches. And that to me is ultimately the most important thing. The GM has to get the head coach, right? That's true. But getting that staff, right? Is so important. Not falling into things that he could have easily done. He could have easily fallen into the trap that you just mentioned a little bit earlier, the Hal Hunter trap with Pat Shermer, right? Bring in a guy that, you know, now you could say, Oh, look, he brought in Bobby Johnson as offensive line coach, but brought Bobby Johnson is someone who Joe Shane liked as well. That has nothing to do with Brian Dable, but on the flip side of that, how did he prove that he's not, you know, falling into cronyism as he's not falling into the same trap that some of the coaches who have failed fell into? Well, he hires a guy like Mike Kafka to be his offensive coordinator, a guy that he doesn't have any familiarity with. He doesn't know him that well, but he knows him well enough to know that he's a 
young, bright coach who he interviewed and really liked what he had to say. He comes from a unique offense that is a really good offense in Kansas City, but also not the same or not really that alike to his offense at Buffalo. So what does he think when he finds something like that? He goes, oh, wait, I can bring in this guy who can bring his own concepts from a different offensive system, and I can mix and match them with my system and my concepts. That sounds like a great match. And then he even has the, you know, the wherewithal to say, you know what? This guy's going to call plays too. I was the play caller in Buffalo. That's Brian Dable saying this, but I don't need to call plays. I trust this guy to call plays. I'm going to give him the trust. That's one of the key things. This is past this point, Nick. It's a separate point. One of the things I really like about Brian Dable, this isn't less so for a coach of the year resume and more so just for us moving forward as Giants fans. He does things like that, right? He puts the trust in his players and his coaches. Instead of saying, I'm the man, I'm the guy. You do as I say, I know, and I'm going to be right. He says, Mike Caffey can call plays. He's never called plays before. I don't care. I trust him too. And I'm going to put that confidence in him by saying, dude, you're a first-year play caller, and I've been doing this thing for a while with Josh Allen and have a successful offense. I don't care, dude. You're going to do a hell of a job. And when you say that to someone, even though they didn't have the experience, they don't have the same resume as you as a play caller, it gives them that confidence. And it feels like I feel like he does the same thing with his players, Nick. And that's a side note, but it's part of the whole thing here. And just going to say this to wrap that Kafka point up. No offense to Brian Dable. But I got to be honest with you, I don't think the Giants would have been one of the best red zone offenses in the, in that they are this season if Brian Dable was calling plays. I think Mike Kafka would call better red zone plays this season than Brian Dable would if they were switched. Those reverse, especially when you're that head coach who has to do all the normal head coach duties, but also call plays. I've never I've always been a big believer in the Coughlin, right? Like you have your coordinators, they do their thing, and then you just kind of manage the game. And so I feel like all of that was really good by Brian Dable. It was excellent by Brian Dable, but circling back to the red zone efficiency, I think yes. that's really important. And that should be a tip of the cap to Kafka and also Brian Dable. They also did a great job looking at their quarterback, Daniel Jones, and utilizing some of his best traits to maximize their chances to score touchdowns in the red zone. Because how many times did Daniel Jones drop back, roll to one side of the field? They used the RPO early in the season to Daniel Bellinger and also just the personnel that they do have. They're excellent in the scramble drill. Whenever Daniel Jones does break contain or break the pocket, starts to extemporize, these guys understand how to uncover against the coverage. And those are some of the more recent passing touchdowns that we've seen to Richie James and Isaiah Hodgins, specifically rolling to their right. I feel like Mike Kafka or Brian Dable, whoever ultimately is deciding on the red zone packages are doing an excellent job positioning Daniel Jones in a manner to where he can have success. And that is yeah. not something that we saw from the previous regime, man. One thing I love about this coaching staff, they're not rigid and they're very open-minded. They will evolve and they will change things up. And I firmly believe, dude, they're putting their players into the best spot. And what was our biggest gripe on Jason Garrett, not to kind of kick him while he's down, He's not maximizing his talent and he's not putting his players into the best position to succeed. He's running his system. That's why we had Evan Ingram running seven yard stick mm -hmm. routes instead of getting him to run across the field. Look at the way Evan Ingram is being used by Doug Peterson. That was always the way to maximize Evan Ingram, yeah. but none of the Giants coaching staffs that were here, Ben McAdoo, Pat Shermer, or Jason Garrett used him in that manner. And that is a slight on the New York Giants right there. If he was here right now in 2022, I guarantee Brian Dable would have found a way to use that guy's skill set. That's a great point. If we had re-signed Ingram, we're never going to. But if we had re if the Giants had re-signed Ingram, he might have been like a surprise big-time contributor for them right now because we know, we have the confidence, we've seen it play out that Brian Dable and Mike Kafka can maximize talent within their offense. Really, you can look at this entire offense and say not a single player from a skill position standpoint of the Giants was not maximized this season. Bellinger was maximized. Barkley was maximized. Hodgins was obviously maximized. Slayton was maximized once he got playing time. Richie James was obviously maximized. Daniel Jones was obviously maximized. Even players like Cager maximized. 
um, you know, Myrick maximized, Finette maximized, right? Yeah, yeah. Another Rita, thing I want to write well. These are all guys who are playing better under this coach. Absolutely. Breed them Brightwell too. Those are guys that I feel like a lot of the NFL would be like, ah, yeah, whatever. But like on the Giants, I'm like, yeah, those guys are good number twos, man. Every time they get a chance and an opportunity, right. they're making the most of it. And I absolutely love seeing it. We talked about the evolving nature of the personnel packages and the passing game, but also the rushing attack, right? Heavy power gap early in the season, Dan. We haven't seen as much power gap recently, right? It was much more zone based and much more duo based, much more double team oriented and not as much GH counter and things of that nature. And that's what we saw a lot in Tennessee, right? A lot of, you know, GT counter, GH counter, and just double pullers where the center and the play side tackle would kick and pull into space. We haven't seen as much of that out of the 11 personnel package. We've seen much more, like we said, inside zone, some stretch, some duo blocking scheme. And the Giants have improved their rushing attack. And that is a credit to Brian Dable, Mike Kafka, and Bobby Johnson for being able to evolve this offensive line and allow them to use different techniques to gain just a better rushing advantage. Because for a little bit there, it looked like the Giants had just hit a wall in terms of rushing the football. After that Houston game, it got ugly there for a little bit. Yeah. And now I feel much more confident with them heading into the playoffs. That's another great point. They have an evolution of their own run game. That's other, I mean, it's it, it fits into the same box of the evolution of the offense adequately and personnel, but it's specific and it's different. It's not like they just went one way there and you can even make the case. This is less so, you know, for Brian Dable, it's more so just for the giants and his It's not more so for his resume, but just, you know, the absolute difference and evolution of the route combinations and concepts that he runs within his system versus what we were seeing on tape with Jason Garrett over the years, man, even with Shermer, man, like Shermer gets a lot of credit for that offense. He ran with Daniel Jones, 2019, this offense to me is way better and way more, way better coordinated. And the route combinations and concepts are way better. They're at a different level. A lot of what Shermer did was just split the field in half and let his quarterback read high to low, which is fine. And it's going to work a good amount, but it didn't always work, right? We got had horrible games that season at times. So I really feel like that was another thing, but let me get to my second main thing here. So I have the two, the two main factors for me of why he deserves coach the year over all these other guys. The first was the maximization of the roster, but the second man to me, and it's obvious is the maximization and evolution and development of the quarterback. He inherited yeah. a quarterback here on this team who was entering year four. And I don't have these exact numbers up in front of me, which is a mistake. I should have. But entering year four among the lowest quarterbacks in the NFL when it comes to yards per attempt, complete, uh, EPA, expected points added every time he drops back. And despite him being one of the worst quarterbacks by all metrics, really for a three-year span, even even his like on-target percentage dropped insanely in that 2021 season. There were a lot of injuries around the Giants that year, but that has completely changed. And he takes a quarterback who, you know, if you look at NFL history, there really aren't that many quarterbacks in the NFL who were drafted high, have three May years, and then in year four, they just take this huge jump as a player. I can't think of too many. Geno Smith's an interesting one, but he didn't even really get that first three-year sample size of chances. He didn't have that huge chunk that, that this quarterback had, Daniel Jones. And he takes that narrative and he just dumps it. He trashes it. He squashes it. He steps on it and he says, I think this kid has the talent. And I think we can clearly see the physical stuff is all there with Jones for sure. It really always has been more so this year, in my opinion, from an arm talent standpoint than I've ever seen. That's just the kind of harebrained thing. I know I've passed that along. I don't know how much, how much I really believe that um, I believe it, but I don't know how much it's based on fact, but I think there is a possibility that he did work on like lower body and really generate because the throws this year to me, are, especially late in the season when it got cold, have just been coming. The ball's been coming out way better out of his hand than I've ever seen it to his Giants career. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is, he said, I see this guy with all this physical talent. Now, let me maximize him. And what's the first thing he did? He looked at the most important way. The, the thing that was killing Daniel Jones as a quarterback by far was every other coach who's ever had him before Dable said, you drop back in that pocket and try to go through your reads, right? For Shermer, like I mentioned before, it was just read half the field and throw high to low. Fine. For Garrett, Garrett was like, no, no, no. I think this guy's smart. He went to Duke. I believe in him. He works hard. We're going to turn him into a full progression read quarterback, read the whole field. Now, he did it in a weird way. He had a spacing-based stick offense with stick routes and, and all sorts of things, breaking back toward the line of scrimmage as bad as you can get, but he wanted him to read the full field. What Dable said was, I'm looking at the tape of Jones. I see that when he does just drop back, sometimes he has a tendency to just, and this is not what he actually said. This is my interpretation of what Dable said. He said <laughs> he has a tendency to just lock onto that read. He'll sit back there. He'll sit. He'll sit. He'll wait for that receiver to get open. He's not like fully moving fast. It's kind of like, was it open based on what we saw pre-snap? It's not, but he can get open. Let me wait for him to get open. He'll get into another throwing window. And when he used to do that, Jones, what would happen? One, a lot of the time that receiver would never get into that window in time before the pass rush gets to him and either sacks Jones forces him to roll to his right, which he did a ton of in his, in his first three years, which is not good. He's rolling, rolling, rolling to his right. He's getting chased and he kind of just dumps it out of bounds or he gets sacked, hit from behind. He fumbles. It's a turnover or he's waiting. He's waiting. He throws late. Now, by the time he throws late, defenders are converging on the ball. The ball's tipped in the air and it's intercepted. And once again, it's another tone for, he said, how do I eliminate that? That's the first thing I need to eliminate with this quarterback to help his development. And he does so by saying, look, man, if you don't like what you see on that read, don't sit and wait for it to get open. Just look ahead of you straight ahead. And if that B gap is open, my man, take it and run with it because you have the ability to do it. You're a threat as a runner. And it changed his entire game. I feel like, man, because not only did Daniel Jones become plus player on those plays where that first read is away is, is, is taken away by the defense and it wasn't what he expected to be pre-snap, but now he's turning them into eight-yard gains or 10-yard gains or 20-yard gains or whatever with the run game instead of sacks, fumbles, or at best an incompletion, basically, which is what those were. And that's such a flip of, you know, role of what this what you can get out of that play when you turn it into that. But it's not just that. Like he works on, we saw during the preseason him working on drills where Jones is like getting in and out of cones as if it's a pocket and then rolling to the right and making a throw. And now what are we seeing? This insane evolution of Jones's game in the red zone where he used to be a terrible quarterback. If we're being honest in the red zone, now he's someone who can like navigate through the immediate pressure, step up. And then while he's rolling, and this was not just in the red zone, this was also on the design bootlegs and the earlier offense of the Giants before they evolved into their 11 personnel, quick game shotgun, heavy offense. When they were running the bootleg offense, Jones is more patient while he's rolling to his right, right? Like he's keeping his eyes down the field. That was always a problem for him as well. Now he's keeping his eyes down the field. He's not running at a hundred percent as he's rolling, right? He's patient. He's, he's, he's pacing himself. And so he's giving himself the option to run or pass, which is what you always want from a dual threat type of quarterback like Daniel Jones. So just taking away his biggest weakness and turning it into maybe his biggest positive is to me an insane thing you can do as a coach for a year four quarterback. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ready to win money and boost your odds? WinBet is now live in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, and Virginia. We're bringing the excitement of Win Las Vegas to online sports betting and casino play. Exclusive rewards are right at your fingertips with Win Rewards on WinBet. Get in on all your favorite teams, players, and sports from the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, golf, MMA, WNBA, college football, and more. Great promos, odds, and payouts are happening right now at WinBet. From boosted same-game parlays to live in-game odds on every major sports, WinBet has what you need to win. Ready to play? Sign up today to receive a special offer. Bet $100, win $100. Download Bet Win. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Be on the lookout for the WinBet Win Hour each Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. During WinBet Win Hour, marquee games of the week will have better odds on WinBet, giving you a larger payout opportunity. Offer subject to change. Terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where play through WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, please call 1-800-522-4700. I was running low on some groceries, so naturally, I went to a store that sells said groceries to look for my refreshments. There I was in the beverage aisle, and I saw these tall boys of what I originally thought was beer, but it was actually in the bottled water section, and it was mountain spring water from the Alps, and it was called Liquid Death. And I thought to myself, do I want to try this beverage that is named Liquid Death because I hear it brutally murders your thirst, and their recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. And they also donate 10% of their profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. Those are some pretty cool causes. So I bought myself some liquid death, and I enjoyed it. I was parched, and then I drank it, so I was not. So if you want to try some of this liquid death, go get liquid death at your local Whole Foods Market, Target, and Stop and Shop stores, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash bigblue. That's liquiddeath.com slash bigblue. Jones had over 700 yards rushing this year. Like That's a lot. He's been killing it on the ground, and a lot of them are on those plays where the B-gap comes open. That's the coaching point of Brian Dable. If you don't love what you see, don't force it. Use your legs because you're freaking athletic and defenses aren't really accounting for your athletic ability. And that's something that we're still seeing right now. He's still abusing defenses with his legs. And I think it's something that we're going to see against Minnesota. They have to account for Daniel Jones because if they don't, he's going to make them pay. And I think that's a huge mishap from the previous coaching staffs is they didn't necessarily take advantage of his ability to run. The highest rushing amount he had 
prior to this was 2020. He ran for 423 yards, but that was with an 80 yard rush that he fell down on that we all remember against the Eagles. His longest rush this season is 25 yards. So he was just getting eight, 10, nine, six, yeah. five yards like that. And just matriculating, as we like to say, thank you, Hank Stram, the football down the field. And I think it was a vital part of what the New York Giants did, not to mention the zone read game, which was something that we saw a lot early on in the season. And we're still seeing it right now too, but we saw Daniel Jones keep it a lot more earlier in the season. And then Seattle was like, no, 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 we're not going to allow that. And the Texans kind of replicated it. And there's so many teams replicated that, but now Saquon Barkley at that point had one less defender that they had to really, that he had to really worry about because defenses were finally starting to respect Daniel Jones on the zone read. Because if they didn't, Daniel Jones was just going to take it and run for 10 which he did a ton of until the defense had to respect it. And even on the plays where they were designed versus the plays where they were scrambles, we know when your quarterback decides to run off a scramble, you know, and scramble again is a play where it's designed drop back to throw, but you don't like what you see and you decide to run. He gives himself the best chance of succeeding basically versus any other decision. Uh, ben Solak did a good job breaking this down earlier this season, talking about the evolution of quarterback play in the NFL. And the EPA on scrambles is five point something. The EPA on a regular play on a regular drop back is two. Point something you're adding an expected over more three points per play when you decide to run with the football as a quarterback instead of throw it on those scramble plays um and even so you know there were times where daniel jones made the right decision and did decide to throw it and it and it you know it's no different there but that's just been such a huge evolution the giants overall epa on offense because in 2022 the giants actually had positive epa on offense and they ranked 11th in the league with a 22.8 now we're not going to get in the numbers but epa means expected points added so they are in the top echelon right almost in the top 10 of the league under brian dable 2021 they were dead last and when i say dead last <laughs> i mean freaking dead last under jason garrett in 2020 they ranked 30th in 2019 they were 24th and in this season, their pass EPA, which anytime they drop back to pass, they were 13th in the league. And I think one reason why, and I think the drop, this is all just dropbacks. It might not just be passing the football, right? but Daniel Jones's ability to run, like you just broke down what Benjamin Solak did. I think it was last offseason about how important those scramble plays are. They really add to EPA and they really assist to that specific statistic. And Daniel Jones has been killing it with his legs and with his arm. And we're looking at a team now that, couldn't crack the top 20 in terms of EPA on offense. Now Daniel Jones has his team just outside the top 20 with 11th overall. And if you want to go to the red zone too, man, you want to talk about red zone scoring. Yeah. We have some really neat statistics here in, uh, in terms of red zone. Like the giants haven't finished in the top 10 in red zone touchdown percentage, right? Since 2014 this year, they were, they ranked, I believe eighth or something like that in the national football league in red zone touchdown percentage. So this wow. is a team that can effectively score once they get into the red areas. What was one of our biggest gripes in during the last couple of seasons? It's like, yeah, sometimes they move the football down the field. Once they get in the red zone, absolutely bogged down. There are still areas right now, Dan, where Daniel Jones can improve in the red zone. But as we brought up a little bit earlier, this coaching staff is, are, is doing things right now to where Daniel Jones doesn't have to do so much, right? They're not putting the burden on him fully. They are allowing him and designing plays for him to maximize all of those traits that we've been going over, specifically his legs, rolling him to one direction, allowing him to find these smart wide receivers who are uncovering themselves in coverage, right? So uh, that is just, like we said, man, another, another tip of the cap to Mr. Brian Dable, just how he's able to really maximize this offense in the red area. Yeah, you're damn right. And a few more things that I've seen, at least from evaluating the tape over the course of the season that I'd like to get your takes on. If you have any takes on what I've seen or your own, as far as 
things that he's done to help develop this quarterback, this fourth-year quarterback that he inherited. Again, how rare is it to see a fourth-year quarterback take a jump like this? Look at NFL history, and you'll see how how insanely rare it is. But a few other things that I've seen, more so than ever before, Daniel Jones' ability to create these plays off script, and a lot of that is because he's developed this rapport with the receivers that are that he's now dealing with. And again, we already talked about there's been an evolution in the personnel at the receiver core and the tight end core in the season. Core, corpse, whatever you want to call it. I'll call it corpse. You call it core. But um, then an evolution in the talent and at those two positions. Um, but now when he's making these scramble plays where he's leaving the pocket and he's moving and he's rolling and we're talking about how he's keeping his eyes downfield. Well, now these receivers are in sync with him. They all have a plan. Darius Slayton talked about the different plans that even each of them have from Isaiah Hodgins to Slayton to James. They all have their own plan. And Daniel Jones knows that plan. Like they're in sync with each other. Daniel Jones knows what's going to happen. Who do you think helped create that plan? It wasn't just Daniel Jones sitting around in the meeting room one day talking to Richie James and those guys like, hey, maybe we do this when I roll. No, it was the coaches. Brian Dable is part of that. Brian Dable created a plan for how to win these scramble drills, how to win these off script plays. But a few of the other things that I've noticed on film, Nick, that I want to get your take on any of these or just anything you've noticed that's been improved with development at the quarterback position. The first would be, and this is specifically as of late in recent weeks of film, there's been a lot less burping of the baby for Daniel Jones. And when we when I say burping of the baby, I mean when he's sitting in the pocket and he pats the ball with his off hand and then before making the throw, what that does when you burp the baby is it slows down. the t- It kind of throws off the timing. It doesn't always throw off the time because you see a lot of NFL quarterbacks still burp the baby and Jones will still do it from time to time. It's not like it's completely gone from his game. But I've seen some plays that some of the biggest plays the Giants have had this, during this stretch of where the pass offense has come alive where he did not burp the baby at all and he just let it rip. and those plays, the timing might have been off if he burped the baby. So I want to start with that, less burping of the baby. Also, better footwork overall. I think one of the things that he had as an issue coming out of Duke that I saw his first season a lot, he used to drift in the pocket, specifically to the left. Whenever he was throwing to the left side, he would drift left before making that throw to the left. And that, again, is something that you don't ever want to do as a quarterback. You never really want to drift in the pocket. That's been almost entirely eliminated from his game. I haven't seen much of that, if any at all. We get down to my third point here, and that's the faster eyes post snap. We've broken it down all year, Nick, when we do the film, but he's doing a much better job of two things, confirming the safeties post snap and then confirming where the second level defenders are in relation to what the offensive play call is and what the route combination is. And so those three things are just extra things. I think Brian Dable has done a really good job of helping develop in Daniel Jones's game. Manipulation of the pocket too, like him stepping up into the pocket. And like we said, finding the B gap or or just finding space away from defenders and kind of having that situational and spatial awareness to know where defenders are around you, I feel like has really developed. And that's something that I feel like has kind of steadily increased from Daniel Jones since his rookie season. Cause remember back in like 2019, this guy was fumbling like twice a game. It seemed like, right. And that was kind of his reputation nationally. He's known as like a turnover monster. Like Daniel Jones is not turning the football over like he did back in 2019. He's not doing that under Brian Dable, Jason Garrett. I feel like to a fault attempted to script those negative plays out to the point where Daniel Jones wasn't letting it rip and not trusting himself and probably leaving a lot of yardage on the field this coaching staff i feel like is getting yards in a variety of different ways while letting him throw but not letting him put the ball into harm's way too often which is something that obviously you you don't want to happen i think the giants probably beat the vikings if he doesn't throw that interception and daniel bellinger doesn't fumble the football so it's something that we'll have to monitor going into this wild card game but overall man i'm i'm very pleased with the development of Daniel Jones and how he has progressed right now. And I'm hoping that it can continue. This is his first year in this system. 
Yeah, completely his first year in this system. And it's his first year under a coach who understands his skill set. And that's the key factor with Jones. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother conversation and podcast, which we'll get to at some point. But let's talk about a few of the other things that make us or that we feel are part of the uh, Dable's resume that stand out. I would say one of the other things is just his overall situational feel for how things are going within games. You know, it starts off with the decision that he makes in the first week of the season to go for that two-point conversion against the Titans, try to win that football game. The confidence he instills in Barkley, Jones, his entire offense, Mike Kafka, who has to go out there and make the play call for that two-point conversion, and it's all on him. It's in some ways, if it fails, it's all on him and all those players. It's just what I said before, like earlier during his tenure where he goes, you know what, Mike Kafka, you never called play before. Sorry, called plays before. It doesn't matter. I trust you. Here's the job. You're going to do it for the first time. It's the same thing right there. Like, we're not the team that wins these games. We're not the team that goes for two-point conversions. We're going to do it. We're going to be the team that goes for a two-point conversion. We're going to try to win this game. And even at times where I haven't really fully agreed with him, right? Like, against Washington in, in that overtime situation where he made the punt, I didn't fully agree with it. And it was the right decision after all because, I mean, it ended up in a tie anyway. But if they miss that t- that fourth down there, maybe Washington get into field goal range. Maybe they, they kick the field goal. Maybe the Giants lose that game. Maybe the Giants will make the playoffs. Who knows? There's a lot of factors that would have to come into play there. But that's another time he's had a good situational feel. I feel like he's done a good job with his challenges and all the things that go into being the head coach on the sideline who doesn't call the plays on the other side of the ball, but you're in charge of everything else. And so I do feel like he's had a really good situational feel. Dable, he's done an excellent job. Obviously, we believe that. I think the one mishap that he really had this season was putting Adoree Jackson back as the punt returner. I think in hindsight, that was a pretty bad move by Dable. But other than that, man, I mean, he's far exceeded expectations and has done a remarkable job in year one. Yeah, he has. And I mean, we could look to some of the case that, you know, someone like Warren Sharp made how, look, some of these stats on the Giants, what Dable inherited is insane. Not only do they have the fourth lowest cap space going into this offseason, they also had the ninth most snaps they had to replace. That was a, Those were two stats that Warren Sharp brought up. I mean, that's roster maximization right there. And what he was able to do, I mean, look, this is a team that over the last five years, the Giants did not have a single six-win season. They're the only team in the NFL that didn't win more than six games in the season. Even crazier, over that same span, the Giants were the only team in the NFL to not have an above 500 record at any point. And this dude comes out right away with the decision to go for two and gives them a chance to have an above 500 record for the first time in five years. And that's exactly what happens. The Giants defeat the Titans. They have the above 500 record. It sets the whole tone for the season. It's one of his best situational calls of the year and also something that really changed, I thought, the feel for what the season was going to be about. Take even our preseason expectations when we did that thing with talking Giants, right? And we said what? You said they were going to win nine games. I said they were going to win eight games. And we might have backed right. off a little bit with some of the injuries uh, throughout preseason and everything like that. But my primary reason for thinking that was the schedule because the Giants had a weaker schedule. It wasn't necessarily because I believed that this coaching staff, even though I was high on the coaching staff, but I didn't realize the type of coaching edge that the New York Giants were going to receive. And right. after week one, you started seeing it. And then we discussed it. Everybody who's been listening to us this entire season, every game, we do those all 22 reviews. They're all on YouTube for you guys to digest. And you can see how things are different. They don't always look the same, but there is a certain philosophy that is a little bit unpredictable with what Mike Kafka and Brian Dable have done. And we know Wink Martindale. We know his philosophy. Wink is going to wink. But at the same time, there are some unique coverages there. And this team has, like we said it so many times, Dan, 
They've evolved so much throughout this season. And I think that alone, with Daniel Jones as your quarterback that everybody has written off, with all the injuries that they dealt with, I think that alone is a big reason why Brian Dable should win coach a year, is the overall evolution in year one with this current roster. And I know Doug Peterson is my number two, if I had to pick, and I think it's really close because Doug Peterson has done such a freaking good job, Dan. He's done such a marvelous job, but he also has Trevor Lawrence. He had the universal number one pick, the Andrew Luck type prospect coming out. Daniel Jones, nobody, everyone laughs at Daniel Jones right now. And Brian Dable has turned this guy, turned this guy's career into one that he might make 30 plus million dollars next year. Right, which no one thought was possible going into the year. And that's something that now is possible. And in a large part, and credit to the coaching and to what they're able to do to not only maximize this talent from the standpoint of what we've talked about, his development as an actual thrower and his development as actual pocket manipulator and all those things, but also to develop the offense, the system, and the play calling to what works best for him as a quarterback, to his skill set, regardless of his actual development as a quarterback. Both things. It's a two-pronged development here with Daniel Jones. It's a development as an actual quarterback, but it's also maximizing the system to fit his skill set for whatever that skill set might be. And so we can wrap this thing up, but I want to say one more thing before we give the kind of bullet points. And the final thing is Brian Dable has been all about the importance of it, and he's coached this, the key money downs. If you look at this team and you look at why this team has won nine games with such a crap roster going into the season and injuries, it's crazy, right? Like, how do you win nine games with this bad of a roster going in, no cap space, and then you get injuries too? Well, part of it is being insanely detailed, focused, and then efficient and correct on your key downs, your third downs and your red zone. He's Put together a team that on offense is one of the best red zone offense in the NFL. They've also been pretty damn good on third downs. Daniel Jones has dug them out of a lot of third and longs. They've had a lot of good route combos to get out of these third and long situations. And then on the flip side of the ball, on defense, what are they best at? It's not an all-pro defense, right? DVOA, the Giants, we talked about, you talked about earlier how the, how the Giants are like 11th in EPA on offense. On DVOA, on defense, they're like 28th, like 29th. This has not really been that good of a defense on an efficiency standpoint. But what are they great at? Getting off the field on third down and getting off the field in the red zone and forcing field goals in those red zone situations. So he's really done a good job of hyper-focusing on the actual stuff that matters toward winning football games. Third downs, red zone. Those are the key ways. And obviously, you know, there are other factors, turnovers, which he's done a good job again with Daniel's development, right? And Dan, like Daniel said two weeks ago, what did Daniel Jones tell the media? Well, I think the biggest difference in my game is that I've learned, this is my Daniel Jones impression for the first time, the debut of the Daniel Jones impression. So I think the first thing I'm just trying to, try to do this over, let me try to collect myself and come up with the best version of this. It's like, yeah, I would say the best the thing that's happened is I've learned that you don't have to try to make something happen out of everything, right? Sometimes you just take what's there. And that's true, right? Like, Giant Dables made it clear to him, like, you can just take what's there sometimes, right? And don't force these throws. Don't Run with it, it right? Yeah. Turn it into a positive. And now he has what? The lowest interception total in the entire NFL for a quarterback who's played the majority of the snaps this season. That's insane in itself, right? Just take away all the things I already said about Daniel Jones's development, both as a quarterback and then fitting the system to fit his skill set. You've also taken a player who was insanely turnover prone. If you look at his turnover numbers through his first three years, they're wild. They're through the roof. They're insanity. And he's turned him into a not turnover worthy quarterback. He's now the opposite. Like you take a guy who was very turnover prone or turnover, you know, he took had a turn of turnover worthy plays. And now he has so few. And what the hell is that? That alone could be the coach of the year resume right there. You can just give it to him off of that. <laughs> so just to wrap this thing up, I'm going to say my final points on, on Dable. And then we're going to discuss other candidates are this one and two, most importantly, his development of the quarter, a year four quarterback and his maximization of a really bad roster situation. 
two, three, four, five is some of the things you've talked about. Picking the right coaching staff, situational play calling, being really locked in, dialed in on the money downs, the red zone and third downs. And then obviously, of course, in addition to that, the situational feel for when to do things and the confidence that he puts in every single person, player and coaching uh, and coach on this staff. So that's my final case for Dable. I don't know if you have anything else there before the jury rests and we consider these other candidates. No, I think we discussed a lot of why we believe Brian Dable is the coach of the year. And it's not based off homerism. I feel like he's just done an absolute wonderful job here in New York in his first season. And so let's consider the other guys. We'll start with who I think probably is a little, no, not probably, definitely above the other guy of a tier of Brian Dable and these two other guys. We'll start with the guy you mentioned, because I think he is the closest to Dable. And that's obviously Doug Peterson. So Doug Peterson, very similar coach of the year resume, I think, to Brian Dable takes over a really bad roster in Jacksonville, though they had a shit ton of salary cap, salary cap space to work with. So they were actually able to take that exactly. bad roster and add a ton of talent to it. And so for that reason alone, you could pretty much say Dable belongs in his own tier over Doug Peterson, right? Doug Peterson gets to add Kirk, Christian Kirk. He gets to add Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Sheriff has been so key to that team to lock in that interior, that interior offensive line needed a guy like Brandon Sheriff in there. Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, who played a key role this offseason. Evan Ingram, who you mentioned before, who he then maximized. So he did have the cap space, but he also had a really bad situation, even more toxic, I think, than what the Giants had with Urban Meyer as the previous head coach. That was as bad as it gets from that standpoint, from a culture standpoint. And that's something we didn't even talk about, by the way, the culture Brian Dable created. But I know in general, I don't love to throw the culture talk into like coach of the year resume. If we're coming as Giants fans talking about we have the greatest culture in the world, Brian Dable developed him, give him coach of the year. He's done so many other better things that, you know, give him reason to be coach of the year. But even so, you know, he developed that quarterback same way, Doug Peterson. He developed a quarterback just like uh, uh, Brian Dable did. But as you mentioned, Trevor Lawrence, God, I hope we don't offend some Daniel Jones lovers, but he's a more talented quarterback than Daniel Jones in just about every single way. Um, he's also a year two quarterback. He's less developed. He's had less time of, you know, we have seen some examples where a year two quarterback gets revived from a bad year one. We've seen very few examples of a year four quarterback getting developed and revived like Brian Dable was able to do with Daniel Jones. So there's similarities to what Doug Peterson has done from a roster maximization standpoint and from a quarterback develop stamp, development standpoint. But overall, I feel like Dable has done a better job with the, with the quarterback development, given the two difference between talent between Jones and Lawrence. And then more importantly, with the roster maximization, because he didn't have any salary cap space to add talent. The Jaguars did. And the cherry on top of the argument, in my opinion, and I don't know how much you want to really take in with this point, would okay. be Brian Dable went down to Jacksonville and beat <laughs> Doug Peterson in week seven. So there's something there, at least maybe just the cherry on top or maybe the difference maker. But I think that should maybe be factored in a little bit because this is a close race. Yeah, that's a great point. That should also be factored in, too, if they're the two finalists. And I want to throw my throw into the final player or final coach I'll throw into the ring made my tier one. You mentioned him a little earlier. It's Kyle Shanahan. So for me, the biggest, I don't have much of a case for Shanahan. It's only one thing, but that one thing weighs heavily for me. So once again, Kyle Shanahan almost got the one seed, but he takes them to 13 and four and his resume to me, like I said, it's not very detailed. I don't have five bullet points like I do for Peterson or like I do for Dable. It's one thing, man. He had to win with a third string quarterback. In the most important position in football by far, the only position where if you don't have talent there, you have no chance. We literally saw a team last year, the Giants, be down to their third-string quarterback in Jake Fromm and be absolutely pathetic, the worst you've ever seen. They weren't even good with their second-string quarterback. But with their third-string quarterback, Jake Fromm, they're 
literally kneeling on third and long <laughs> victory formation on third and long because they don't trust this guy to even complete anything past the six or anything to even get remotely close to a third down conversion. I'll be honest with you, Nick. I haven't really studied Brock Purdy that much, but something tells me, and you can probably, I hope 49ers fans don't hear this, but I don't really know how much more talented Brock Purdy is than Jake Fromm on a pure talent standpoint. He's probably smarter, and I think he's probably quicker release, things like that that are important. Fromm had a tough, tough go at it. Definitely has a stronger arm, and Purdy doesn't even have a gun, but Jake Fromm. doesn't even have a good arm, though, but Fromm was, I guess, so bad. Fromm was really bad, though, with that. Yeah. And then why did they ever play from? They could have like found anyone off the wire better than from, but so that's not a great argument. I should take that back, but I really don't think Purdy is like the most amazingly talented quarterback prospect ever. Obviously the NFL agrees. He was the Mr. Relevant pick and that's not to say it's right. We have Tom Brady going in the sixth round, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, he's dealt with a third string quarterback. And what did he do? He didn't collapse. His team didn't collapse. They didn't grind into a wild card spot where they're losing like five of the last six games. There's no hope for the playoffs. He somehow positioned this team in some people's minds to be the favorite for the NFC right now. They won all six games after having to turn to their third string quarterback. They lost their first string quarterback. They lost their second string quarterback. They turned to a third string rookie in the middle of the season. He won all six games. Also, he threw more touchdown passes than any quarterback over that span of six games. That's absolute insanity. Not only did he find a third string quarterback to just manage games and help him grind to wins he literally found a third string quarterback that can get him more passing volume than the first string or second string quarterback were getting him he found a way to maximize the passing offense in a lot of ways like the 49ers pass offense the last six weeks has been better than it was with their first or second string quarterbacks and that alone to me puts him in the mix right because i know how much of that is based on him i know how much of that is kyle with the system with being in the ear every second of brock purdy taking a rookie with no experience and making him look cool, calm, and collected out there, and then having him produce on the field like Purdy has over that six-game sample slide. It's another reason why I think this is a separate argument, but Purdy should be strongly in the mix for rookie of the year. That's my thing. Yeah. I know it's a small game sample size, but quarterback's way more important than all these other positions. So that's my case for Kyle Shannon. It's one, it's one prong, Nick, but it's you go to a third-string quarterback, and then you somehow get a better pass offense out of it. It's an important part of it man it really is i mean they won 10 straight games <laughs> that's insane to think about with insane. brock purdy starting the majority of those games and i think getting the most out of brock purdy is definitely something that makes kyle shanahan look great but we knew kyle shanahan was great when you factor yeah. in the fact that they traded for christian mccaffrey arguably the best running back in the league yeah. mid-season you have george kittle debo samuel's kind of being dinged up this season so brandon Ayu. They're an embarrassment of riches on offense, and that's yeah. not even mentioning that they have the best defense in the league yeah, yeah. from a personnel standpoint and from a coordinator standpoint, which should be factored into this because I'm yeah. sure Kyle Shanahan picked the defensive coordinator. But at the end of the day, right. if I'm choosing, I'm still going to side with Dable, but I, I fully understand why people would go with Kyle Shanahan because, honestly, he could be the best coach in the National Football League right now. Yeah, so I think he's probably third for me. It would probably go Dable, then Peterson, then Shanahan. And I that was our here. case. And but guys like you know, past that, Nick Sirianni for me, not even in the mix. Not even in the mix. Hey man, when you're when you're that when you're that good of a team, I'm willing to throw your hat in the ring. I'm not gonna automatically yeah. write him off, but I just think the talent that the Philadelphia Eagles have because of Howie Roseman, who honestly Howie Roseman could get like executive of the year almost every season. He should get he, it this year for sure with AJ Brown. Probably should with that AJ Brown. Like that, yeah. Even stuff like midseason is like, oh, we got gashed by Damian Pierce. Okay, let's go sign Adamakan Sue and um, and Linville Joseph to share. We don't even need to play that many snaps, right? We'll just put him in for a handful of snaps. They'll stay fresh and they'll impact the game. 
Yeah. Exactly. Like, like it's almost like the Michael Jordan MVP, LeBron James MVP argument. It's like he's not going to get it every year, but he could. And I hate saying that as a New York Giants guy, but I yeah. do have a lot of res- respect for Howie Roseman because every year this guy seems to come out and, and better his team and put them in a position to win a Super Bowl. With the exception of the the wide receiver draft picks he made for a while. Other than that, until, yeah. until he corrected yeah. himself with Devontae Smith, that was a good job by him. But before that, he had some mistakes there. And then other guys like, you know, McDaniel, I like McDaniel. He would actually be high on my list. He wouldn't be, he would probably be fourth if it was up to me, just because I think he came in there, put in a system that perfectly fit to it and all those receiver skill set, found a receiver that was perfect for the system and generated like insane offense for a while. Even just as recently as like three weeks ago, Miami was competitive on that Saturday night game yeah. against Buffalo before Tua went down again with an injury. And so it's not his, he's not in his control if Tua is going to stay healthy or not. And he doesn't, you can't go, but then again, you could be like, oh, well, Kyle Shanahan had to deal with third string quarterbacks and Kyle Shanahan was still generating offense with them. Why can't Mike McDaniel? And it's a fair point. It's another reason why I think Kyle Shanahan is well above Mike McDaniel in my coach of the year rankings. But then guys like, you know, McDermott and uh, Zach Taylor, like now we're going down the list. One other interesting name that we didn't mention, though, is Kevin O'Connell of the Vikings. Yeah. We both kind of feel like they're a somewhat fraudulent team, which I'm scared to say now with our Vikings fans that are coming in and watching these at time, these videos at times. But I will say this, like fraudulent or not as an overall team. He still generated a lot of wins for that team. He came and put in a new offense that perfectly fit, you know, made Justin Jefferson shine, Kirk Cousins shine at times. Um, some of these other receivers found a way to get the most out of TJ Hawkinson, which the Detroit Lions coaching staff has been unable to do for a countless number of years right now. So Kevin O'Connell should also certainly be in the mix as well. And I don't think they have that much talent on defense either, but they do have a lot of talent on offense. But overall, those guys are secondary for me. Yeah, they finished 13 and four, the Vikings. I think Kevin yeah, O'Connell wow. must be in the conversation because he's a first year head coach. Now, offensively, they have more. Yeah, they have more talent than the New York Giants. But even, even with some of the teams that you brought up, like you we're talking about the Eagles and Nick Sirianni added AJ Brown. You're talking about McDaniel added Tyreek Hill. Right. You're talking about Kevin O'Connell has Justin Jefferson. The Giants literally heading into training camp thought their 11 personnel package was going to be Sterling Shepard, Kenny Galladay, and Kadarius Toney. Think about how crazy that is. And now right now, heading into the playoffs, it's Isaiah Hodgins, Richie James, and Darius Slayton. Darius Slayton was fifth on the depth chart at one point. Like That kind of turnover is insane. The fact that Brian Dable was still able to position his team in this manner is a testament to him, his coaching staff, and Daniel Jones. That's exactly right. And I think that's a great way to wrap it up here. So this is our case for why Brian Dable deserves coach of the year. Let us know in the comments if you agree, if you disagree, or if you feel like we missed anything because we thought we did a good comprehensive job, but you never know. So thanks again for tuning in to the Big Blue Banter podcast. Keep it locked and loaded, as we like to say. Subscribe and like this video if you haven't already. Subscribe and like to the podcast if you haven't already. Auto-download that. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you can. Um, just help us boost that number. We haven't asked for that in a while, and we're we're still under 1,000. We're getting close, but I want to hit that 1K number at some point decently soon, so help us there as well. Otherwise, stay tuned because there's going to be more content coming to you every single day of this week leading up to the Vikings uh, wildcard game against the Giants this Sunday.